Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, podcast listeners? So Will isn't here today, but I did want to tell you a quick story. So years ago, we were brainstorming a game show for this big production company who wanted to work with us, and we came up with this concept called Smartest Person in the World. Actually, there was some debate about the title because one person in the group thought it should be called uh, Smartest Human Being in the World because he insisted human beings were a funnier title, but it was this ridiculous quiz show. And we were trying to figure out what the big challenge would be, and we were stumped. And finally, we thought, what if you took a smart person, gave them some materials like a lab or a big textbook on optometry, and told them, why don't you just make a pair of glasses? Like, could the smartest person in the world or smartest human being in the world just forge together some glasses in 30 minutes on this weird reality show? And now that I say it out loud, it sounds like a terrible idea or like a more ridiculous version of Nailed It. But thinking about that show idea made us wonder... How hard is it to create a civilization from scratch? Like, if we had enough time, could we build a bicycle or figure out how to spin silk or make those pair of glasses we were talking about? And is there a funny instructional book that tells you how to do all of this? It turns out there is. Let's dig in. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Mangesh Atikular. Tristan's in the booth wearing his I Miss Will t-shirt, and Will is off officiating a wedding for a college friend of ours. Uh, happy wedding day, Joyce. But uh, as a side note, if you want Will to officiate your wedding and Tristan to DJ the after party, you can always hit us up at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Uh, Tristan, please don't edit that part out. So today we've got a very special author on the show. He's the brains behind Dinosaur Comics. He's won awards for his comic book writing, including penning Adventure Time, the new Jughead. But he's here to talk to us about his new book, How to Invent Everything. Welcome to the program, Ryan North. Thank you for having me. So I really loved How to Invent Everything. It's this ridiculous and hilarious guide to rebuilding a civilization from scratch. But the concept is way more interesting than that. 
And I was wondering if you'd mind telling our listeners a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. So um, the premise of the book, it's sort of a a nonfiction core wrapped in a fictional candy coating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the premise of the book is that this is a, uh, it's a found document. It's a, a repair guide for a time machine. If you go back in time and your time machine breaks down, this is how you fix it. But after the first couple of pages, the book admits that, like, look, time machines are the most complicated machines humans have ever built. <laughs> you're not, there's no user <laughs> serviceable parts inside. You're not going to fix it in the year 200. You're trapped where you are, but we're not going to leave you stranded. Here's how you bring the future back to you by reinventing all the, the basically the low-hanging fruit of civilization. Everything you miss is in this book from, from first principles. And if we don't assume, like, what time period you're in or what tools you have, it's all, like, from basics. Here's how it works. So... For the stranded time traveler, it should be legitimately useful in those circumstances. But for the non-stranded, uh, for us who are just going through time at one second per second and only ever forward, uh, it's also like an interesting book that makes you feel like a more competent person in the world. <laughs> I, feel. I feel a lot better having written it. Uh, I feel a lot more prepared to do lots of things, among which is be stranded in the past. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I was curious about that. Like, how much were you interested in these things before you wrote this book? Like, what was the God. motivation for writing this? Yeah, like age uh, 6 to 16, basically, this is all I thought about. Because I saw Back to the Future, and Marty McFly goes back in time. <laughs> and I was like, that's amazing. What would I do if I was trapped in time? And I kept coming back to this idea that, you know, I'd be saying, oh, it's great in the future, we have computers. And people would say, great, how do they work? And I'd say, I, I don't know, but you're going to love them. <laughs> like, I, I have no proof. And I wanted to to be that person, be like, oh, how does the computer work? No problem. And by the way, here's an internal combustion engine, and here's like everything else you need. So it was something that I sort of fantasized about, and I kept waiting for um, this book to be written. And finally, I wrote it myself, which I think is the origin story of a lot of books. We all write the books we'd like to read. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, that, that was always our goal at Mental Floss, too, was trying to make people interested in something they didn't think they could be interested in. You know, we used to have these conversations in our dorm rooms, Will and I actually, about like, if we went back in time, what we could actually do, like how confident we'd be. And really, other than telling people to like wash their hands a lot, like we really <laughs> didn't feel like we had much advice of them. But you know, yeah, but I, even I was there. You need soap. <laughs> exactly. Like, how do you make soap? <laughs> but but that, that's the thing. Like you, you write about how to make soap. Like why horses can only use certain type of collars. Like uh, you have this argument between like a water wheel enthusiast and a windmill enthusiast, and like. Honestly, I, I never thought I'd have an opinion on uh, on why windmills are better, but it really is terrific. Thank you. I mean, it's it's the way it normally works, as you may know when writing a nonfiction book, is you write kind of a proposal where you say, here's the book I want to write, and here's the sample chapter, and here's the table of contents, and here's what I want to do. And you try to get people interested in that. But for this book, I wasn't at all confident that what I was trying to do was possible. <laughs> because <laughs> I got to collapse civilization into 400 some odd pages. And I wasn't sure that would work, and I wasn't sure if I could do it, if it would be useful like i would i was worried about condensing it so much it would be at level of you know you need food to live find some food and eat it and you wouldn't learn anything so i actually wrote uh 50,000 words for the proposal that i cut down into a smaller amount um and then sort of went from there but i i wasn't at all confident that this book would actually come together because it was just it seemed like this is the the craziest thing I've ever tried to do. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, I, and the fact that, like, I walk away knowing what's a better, like, way to harness a horse is amazing. Oh. And it's it's told in, like, diagrams and just a few sentences, you know. And it is it is stunning. I, I do want to talk about some of the specifics if you're up for it. You know, fairly early in the book, you talk about written language and the importance of creating language. And you discuss pictograms, which I hadn't really thought about. Like, those don't really work as a language when read. 
You know, yes. I, and, and could you explain that a little bit? Because I, I really found that fascinating. Yeah, that's what came out. I was at uh, the XOXO conference last weekend, and we're talking about emojis a lot there. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a similar idea where people can say, oh, emojis are a language. And I, I went to school for linguistics, so I'm the guy being like, um, actually, <laughs> there's an important <laughs> difference. <laughs> so you can, there's a difference between communication and language, right? So like, you can communicate with a dog, and you know what your dog's feelings are communicating with you, and you're exchanging feelings, if not legitimate commands, right? Mm-hmm. And there's difference, so you can clearly communicate with animals, but you can't really have a language with them in the same way we have language right now. And one of the main differences between pictograms and words is that words have a specific meaning. So I think in the book, I have an example of a picture of a, a woman tossing her hair in the emoji style and a peach and sunglasses, I think is a Yeah, that's shows. right. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know the story those emoji are trying to tell, you can reconstruct it from those pictograms. You're like, oh, uh, a cool woman ate a peach. That's what this is trying to say. But if you don't know the story, it could also be like, oh, a cool peach was around a woman, or a woman got transformed into a cool peach by aliens. And there's all this stuff that you are reading into it because it doesn't have one specific meaning. It's more like a reminder than an actual narrative. But with words, the whole point of language is to communicate clearly. And so words tend to, you can still have miscommunications, but we try to minimize those in language so that we can communicate quickly and accurately and not you know, be passing pictures back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought you have this, like, long sentence there about, like, uh, I forget what it was exactly, like, aliens being in the glasses or something, you know, in the shadow of the glasses or whatever, yeah. the reflection. And, and it was just so perfectly illustrative of the fact that these aren't, you know, one-to-one. It was pretty yeah. amazing. And, and also the fact that I, I didn't realize this, but Easter Island had a script that's never been deciphered. Like, I, Oh, God, yeah, that's, that's I, find, I mean, I'm sure I communicate in the book, it's terrifying. I find the whole thing terrifying. Yeah, because um, it's this written script, and basically, Europeans show up and wreck everything uh-huh. <laughs> in an unprecedented event. <laughs> <laughs> It'll never happen again. In history. Yeah, and so uh, they bring disease and they bring like slaver raids and all this horrible stuff. When they first show up, it's understood that this is writing, but only the elites can understand it. Mm-hmm. And then when they come back hundred years later, and the the island is in horrible condition, there's only a few people left, and that knowledge of the script is lost. And so, you know, what had been words is now just squiggles that nobody understands. And it it really drove home the idea to me that, like, you know, language is a technology. It's something we invented, and we don't get it for free. And writing down words is something we had to think of and then do. And just like any technology, we can lose it. And the idea of, like, losing the written word it feels like you're just cutting the heart out of any civilization. Like, it's, it's such a devastating blow that it would be so hard to recover from. So I thought it was a, a great example of just like things are more precious than we tend to think they are. Yeah. And something well, as ubiquitous as writing can can still be forgotten. Speaking of that, like you do this great section on farming. I mean, you go through everything from like why you leave a field fallow for a while and, and like all, all sorts of things. But but it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's a small chapter. That's what's amazing about it. But, you know, you talk about ancient corn and peaches and watermelon being completely different. And uh, yeah. w- would you tell us a little bit about what those were like and how they tasted? So we have this idea of selective breeding where we basically, the great thing about selective breeding is this is one of the technologies you kind of get without trying mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just human nature. If you have a plant that has, you know, larger fruit, you plant those seeds next year because it's a better plant to be planting. And so you tend to you add this evolutionary pressure to get the kind of plants you want but um the results of that are things like peaches where these we have these giant succulent peaches in the past with these like hard sour things that no one really want to eat but they're better yeah. than nothing uh corn is a comes from this uh ancient grain that's just like basically grass 
And the crazy thing about corn is we haven't been able to figure out exactly how you get corn out of out of this ancient ancestor. It feels like it must have been this one in a million either random crossbreeding or mutation, but something changed to produce the larger heads of corn with these giant kernels we can eat that um, is just we don't know how to do it yet. <laughs> it yeah, I mean, like it, it sounded like in, in your book, like, you'd only get something like four or five kernels of edible corn off a cob, which yes. is just crazy to think about. <laughs> but, I mean, if that's, if that's the state of the art, that's what you go with, right? You don't, you don't imagine our modern corn. It's ridiculously convenient packaging. We just throw it on the barbecue and then peel it off, and you've got this delicious corn ready to go. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's the thing where, you know, you think of the natural world as being permanent and unchanging when we're surrounded by evidence of human influence on this natural world. Like, we've been changing it since we've been human. Yeah. <laughs> Just it, to make it easier for ourselves. Like, it is remarkable. Um, yeah. So another thing that I hadn't really thought about, I feel like this whole book is things I hadn't thought about, but... One of the things I hadn't thought about was... Um, that that you have to test foods for edibility, right? Like if, if you're coming from the future and you don't know what you're looking at, that you'd need water and salt water on hand? Like, could, could you talk us through the process and why it might take something like 17 hours to determine whether a food is edible or not? Yeah, it's, it's called the, uh, the universal edibility test. And if you're not trapped in the past, it's also useful if you're, say, trapped in the woods or in a survival <laughs> situation and you know what to eat. And so basically, you're, you're taking a tiny bit of this candidate food and you just touch it to your skin and then wait 15 minutes for something horrible to happen for your skin to erupt or bug to crawl out of it or something. That's not going to happen, but just <laughs> you're looking for a reaction. <laughs> and then uh, if that works, you press it to your lips, then the inside of your lips, and then your gum, and then you chew it and spit it out, then you chew it and hold it in your mouth, and then you chew it and swallow. You start taking 15 minutes between each of these steps. And it takes, I think, is it 16 hours? I remember, I forget how yeah, long. Yeah, I, I, I want to say it was 17 hours to, to do this yeah. process. <laughs> but at the end of this, you know it's probably safe to eat. <laughs> but there's no guarantees. <laughs> that is pretty remarkable. It was, it was fun um, researching the book because I, re I was reading a lot of survival books for the present, right? Because they're not unrelated scenarios. And one thing I discovered is that there are some survival books out there that are just completely bonkers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was talking about food spoiling and saying, you know, when the apocalypse happens, not if, but when, you'll <laughs> want to be eating food that's, you know, in tin cans and stuff or in fridges. And by the way, don't worry about food going bad. That's a, that's a myth. Food doesn't go bad. You can still eat it. It just doesn't taste good, but it still has nutrition in it. And I'm like, I don't, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> then it was like, stick to the second edition. Like, so the fish and got botulism, and that's, so fish can go bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. You know, there was a time when we used to look for funny prizes for um, a trivia show we used to go around doing. And, and I found a survivalist site that produced... Um, peanut butter and jelly in a can and it was just meant to be on shelves waiting for you so that in the future you could pull out like a fresh peanut butter and jelly sandwich which is uh, just amazing to me but the word fresh is a very generous use of the word fresh in that <laughs> i never made a pb and j sandwich so you know what this will i'll let this cure for a couple of weeks before i eat it and then it's going to be delicious <laughs> So, um, you know, you also have a great section on plants that are useful, and and, uh, and there's a whole list of them from um, apples to white mulberries, where uh, silkworms can grow, to rubber, to sugarcane, but you also include tobacco on this list, and I was curious why you chose to do that. Was that just for humor or for historical purposes, or, or what was it? 
I mean, it's not a very glowing review of tobacco. <laughs> you should do is smoke this stuff. But it is one of the uh, plants that has had this huge impact on human history, right? Like, mm-hmm. it turns out that when humans find tobacco, they eventually try smoking it. <laughs> and so knowing not to do that can save your civil, your potential future civilization, like millions and millions in, in medical costs and lives cut down too soon. So I felt like that was more of a be careful with this one than a, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, you know, for, for, for the listeners, I, I, I will note that uh, I'll read the quote you've put in the notes section under tobacco. Avoid introducing tobacco to your civilization and you will save billions of dollars, millions of lives and prevent the invention of vaping, which I, <laughs> I found really funny. <laughs> oh, man, I just laughed at my own joke. How embarrassing. But well, that's the advantage of writing a book is you write it, it takes a year or two and then you forget the jokes you put in until you have them played back to you. Like, yeah, that's pretty good past me. <laughs> so do you have any plans that you're particularly partial to on, on this list of yours? There's a, a footnote for, I believe, orange plants talking about scurvy and citrus. And it's one of the most ridiculous footnotes in the book. <laughs> it's talking about, you know, citrus prevents scurvy, and scurvy is a horrible disease. It, it kills you mm-hmm. eventually after making you be in pain for a long, long time. And the British Empire discovered, or like humans in general, discovered that vitamin C is an orange juice and that prevents scurvy, and then forgot that fact like so <laughs> many times throughout history. <laughs> and it would be funny if people weren't dying every time it happened. And the most, uh, the most heartbreaking one is that the British discover this. Like, great, we solve scurvy, it's done. And then, you know, 50 years go by, they invent steamships. So people are traveling faster at sea. And also there's better nutrition at shore, so people have better vitamin C reserves. And so nobody notices that when the British Army shifts from fresh juice to this stored lime juice that they run through copper pipes, which kills the vitamin C in it, that their scurvy cure no longer works. Because it's being masked by the fact that people aren't at sea for longer. And then you hit this great age of exploration in Antarctica, and people start getting a scurvy again. And they're like, well, our cure is clearly not working, so we're out of ideas. <laughs> Bad morale causes the scurvy. And you're like, back at square one again. You're like, why? How do we keep forgetting this information? It's a disease that you can cure by eating an orange. <laughs> <laughs> the medicine is the same as a cure. It's, it's heartbreaking, but also hilarious but also not funny at all because all these people are dying from just the stupidest reasons yeah when we uh used to put out t-shirts at menopause one of of the first jokes i'd written for that was uh, a shirt with a pirate on it and said when life gives you scurvy make lemonade and uh it was very (laughs) divisive because people didn't like the idea of a scurvy joke on a shirt but uh, i mean it's legitimate advice though (laughs) (laughs) well we're going to be back with ryan north right after a little break Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking with Ryan North, the author of How to Invent Everything. So, Ryan, we were just talking about plants, but I do want to get into animal husbandry because you have a section on that, and uh, it is really fun as well. I'm curious, what animal did you like riding up the most? (laughs) There's this whole thing in medicine. I'm talking Western medicine, but it applies to a lot of them, where we are operating under the wrong idea of what medicine is for thousands of years. And... In Western medicine, it's the idea of the four humors that are in imbalance, and because of that, you might have too much blood, and that's the reason, you know, you have cancer, not for any other sure. medical reason. If you have too much blood, well, suck it out with the leech. And so the leech was a way to talk about, you know, how bad ideas of what disease is can cause bad treatments, and how there is no medical use for a leech at any point in history. Then a footnote saying, okay, fine, there's a tiny medical use in the 80s where we realized that leeches had this one drug that was useful in cosmetic surgery. Then we synthesized it five years later. So in this narrow window, you can use leeches, but you shouldn't be using <laughs> anywhere else in time. Like, It's just this idea that humans have where I say humans like I'm not one of them. This idea we have where we'll, uh-huh. we'll launch onto this bad conception of what something is and not examine it for literally thousands of years. It makes the point of view of a time traveler saying there's a lot of things you can fix here. Like there's there's ways for humanity to improve our history simply by not treating diseases with leeches for thousands of years. That'll that'll be a lot better. And you mentioned silkworms as well. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, silkworms. Um, they're they're I believe the only domesticated insect we have, and hmm. uh, it has not worked out too well for silkworms <laughs> because they used to you know just feed on these leaves of this white mulberry plant and then spin this cocoon of a single piece of silk and then emerge as these new animals. And now, since we've domesticated them, they spin this cocoon of silk and those that do emerge only live for a couple days. They can't eat unless they're force-fed. They can't fly. They're blind. And they're just like these unhappy little beasts. (laughs) And most of them, we stick in boiling water to kill them and harvest their silk. So... They're the only domesticated insect, but it hasn't been a real success story from the silkworm's point of view. <laughs> That's definitely true. But, but just, just knowing, you know, where silk comes from could make you millions of dollars at certain points in history. Because it, it was this big secret. And there are all these ideas like, where does silk come from? You know, I heard 
it's when uh, this is one insect that if it eats too much, it explodes in this explosion of silk. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like a telephone game, like someone knew it came from an insect but didn't know how the silk happened, and you sort of get this result down the road. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. So one of the things I also really liked in this section was about goats, and I'm a fan of goats anyway because they uh, helped us discover coffee, but you also write that they're a great way to get rid of poison ivy. Why is that? So poison ivy is fascinating because um, it has this horrible effect on humans, and it's probably an accident. <laughs> There's no evolutionary reason for this to affect only humans and one other ape and that's it huh. so it seems to be an accident that poison ivy is even poison in the first place and it doesn't affect goats but goats love to eat it and so if you have poison ivy you can rent a goat and just put it on your land and it will eat up all the poison ivy along with your other stuff and all you have to do is be careful not to pet the goat or drink the goat's milk by accident over the next couple of days and your problem is solved that's remarkable. That's the kind of person who sort of ends up accidentally drinking goat milk all the time. <laughs> Here we go again. So th this is uh, back to an earlier question, but like I, I feel like you have written a bunch of these um, really unusual books, or, or the concepts for the books are really unusual, and you've also written these books that tackle Shakespeare, but treat them almost like uh, choose-your-own-adventure books. What was your inspiration for writing this style of book? Like, uh, were there models of these books or tones that you sort of were drawn to when you were growing up? No, um, I'm, I'm actually hoping there's more books like this. I hadn't read a book before that had um, a fictional conceit around a nonfiction core. And I know my publishers were worried. They're like, well, people think this is all fake information. <laughs> so we, uh -huh. had our, <laughs> we had this huge bibliography of all the sources I referenced. So you know that they're, this is all real. Except for the time travel parts, which is not real. <laughs> but it was um, it was less of books I read and more movies I saw of time travel adventures where usually, in pretty much every time travel movie I've seen, there's not a person who's like, I'm prepared for this scenario, for I have researched it and uh -huh. have the information in my head or in this book. So I just like the idea of someone who you know wakes up in the year negative 500 and says, great. I know exactly what to do today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also like that in the, in the beginning, like I feel like one of the things about time travel movies is people are always disputing whether or not time travel can work or like the, the laws of time travel or whatever. And I, I like that you address them right up front. <laughs> yeah, it, I sort of had to because the, the whole premise is it's a, it's a rental time machine, right? And I feel like if you can go back and step on a butterfly and destroy the universe, it's wildly irresponsible to rent out time machines. So <laughs> but it builds this model of time travel. Whenever you go back in time, you create a new parallel timeline where everything's the same except you're there. And so you can't mess up the world you're from, which works for a time travel adventure. But it's also like has huge ethical implications of just creating a parallel world for tourism purposes. <laughs> and assuming there's no consequences, but it's filled with living, breathing people. It's like a nightmare holodeck. But works really good for this, the purposes of this book. <laughs> I agree. So you have a section on uh, medicine and how to invent it, where where you talk about things like germ theory and and baselines for normal humans. But you also have this sidebar on a rehydration drink, and I, I was curious why you included that. Yeah. Um. So this rehydration drink is it's like everything else. It's a real drink, and um, like everything else in the book, I should say it's real. Mm -hmm. But um, the reason I included it is because there's tons of diseases that don't technically kill you from the disease they kill you from diarrhea from just dehydration of pooping so much and it's such an unfair way to die plus it can be treated if you're just drinking this rehydration drink even though you're vomiting drink it between the vomits you'll be fine 
And the trick is it's got some solvent, so lets your body absorb water slightly faster. And it's just a, it's a really easy and really easy to make medicine that you can make out of water and salt at any time period that can literally save lives if someone is having a disease that makes them poop or vomit too much that's dehydrating them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's incredible that dehydration is one of the biggest causes of death through human history. I mean, that is something I just had never thought about. Yeah, I was I was worried. Um, there are a lot of sections that worried me at the start, and medicine was one of them because I was thinking, you know, what can I tell you that's useful, that's practical? Like, yeah. if you're trapped 100 years ago, what can I tell you that's going to be valuable? But even just that is insanely valuable. Like, you can save so many lives with that, just knowing how to make it and when to administer it. Also, I had the benefit that, you know, killers like heart disease and cancer aren't going to be a big concern if you're in the distant past because you have to live a long time usually for those to have an effect on you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I I do want to go back to one of the things I referenced in the beginning, which was uh, the discussion of water wheels versus windmills. And I I was curious if you could talk about the benefits of both of those and and why a windmill might be superior. Oh, you're on team windmill. Interesting. Uh, so basically, what you want with either a water mill or a windmill is to turn a wheel, because a wheel can power machinery, which can grind your grain and do all sorts of saw your wood, all sorts of interesting things, hammer your iron. It's basically a machine doing the work for you. And uh, water wheels are great because water carries more force when it moves, but you need water, moving water to do that. Well, windmills, you just need the air, and you can place them anywhere. Um, so the windmill, you have the advantage of you can move it more easily to target the wind and you can place them in areas where you can't place a water wheel but at the disadvantage that wind doesn't carry as much work so you're you're limited to the sorts of things you can do and this the, the challenge i have with the book is that um the fun of it really was that some of the stuff you're like oh well this sounds boring like why do, why do i care about this but if you present it in a fun sort of time travel way it becomes a you know, what team are you on? Team Water Wheel or Team Windmill? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even feel like there was an argument there. <laughs> then, uh, once I read from uh, Chomsky, who I, I think was the, the partner uh, debating you, I didn't think I'd think about the benefits between the two, but it, it was really engaging. Thank you. I mean, that, that's, that's what I was trying to do. The, the, I think the fun of a book like this, because normally if you're writing nonfiction, you're always worried, you know, is this boring and how can I make it not boring? But doing it in this time travel way, whenever I was like, oh, I wonder if this is boring, I could just go back to the time travel thing and put in a time travel joke or have some some fun with the conceit. Yeah. So it gave me an easy way to make it um, an engaging book and not just, here's a list of facts that are useful. Did you know water boils at 100 degrees? Now you do. Yeah, I mean, uh, and you also, like, those little jokes are so funny. Like, you have that section on famous songs that you can plagiarize. <laughs> and it's got sheet music to, like, Ode to Joy and uh, and Pocketball Cannon or whatever. Like, uh, I, I just thought that was such a wonderful relief from, from the rest of the text. But I am curious, like, what ended up on the cutting room floor? Like, what, what is stuff that you thought about tackling but, but found too hard to condense? Yeah, um, there was going to be a section on weapons. And by the time I'd written most of the book, I, I started thinking, I don't want a section on how to kill people. <laughs> yeah. It just feels, the whole book is about building civilizations and building, like, literally building a world around yourself. You know, I, I, then, I'm, actually, I, I'm actually glad you didn't because I, I felt like one of the brightest things about this book was you were filled with news that's so distracting and irritating and upsetting. And, and this book really felt, even though it's kind of a survivalist book, just felt so optimistic, you know? And, yeah, no, it is a very optimistic book. I mean, you have to be optimistic to to be, you know, 200,000 years in the past and thinking, 
I alone can rebuild civilization from scratch. <laughs> I'll just do it. But yeah, so I didn't want to put in any, any weaponry stuff. And honestly, if you want to kill someone, like there's, you can probably figure out a way to do it with what's in the book already. Sure. You know, hurt their feelings with the written word. <laughs> there, <you go. laughs> uh, there was a section, it's funny, in the music section, so the, the gag of that section is you have like some classics, like Pachelbel's Canon and Ode to Joy, and then you've got the Tetris theme song, which is a <laughs> Russian folk song. Uh, I originally wanted to have Salt and Peppa's Shoop there, but I could not, for the life of me, get the rights holders to understand what I was trying to do with this book. <laughs> it's like, hey, can I, I want their sheet music, and I know it doesn't exist, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it. And they're like, is this for a textbook? And I'm like, no, it's not a textbook. It's like nonfiction, but fiction. And it's general information. Like, it's not a textbook. And they're like, oh, so it's for school? It's a textbook? And I was like, no, it's not a textbook. They finally stopped responding to my emails. And I was like, fine. Who would have thought? The problem is that, like, I don't think there's a lot of money in sheet music licensing. And so there's no motivation to put a square peg in a round hole there. They were like, this is, I've already wasted enough time emailing this guy. Forget. <laughs> that is a great story. And, and honestly, Shoop is such a great punchline there. For, for yeah. some reason, it's really <laughs> wonderful. And the other thing I, I ended up cutting was at the end, there was a, a kind of a victory lap chapter mm-hmm. with a recipe on how to make apple pie and ice cream from scratch and sort of riffed off that old Carl Sagan quote where, where he says, like, to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. <laughs> and so... In my words, like, well, you've created a civilization. Now here's how you make apple pie, and all the all the ingredients you could build off what you'd already learned in the book. But it was already a pretty long book, and I felt like this is just like a loop of things people already know. Well, I, I uh, understand why you didn't put it in, but but it would have been a great addition, I think. We're gonna pause for a quick ad break, but we'll be back with Ryan North in just a minute. Today, I'm gonna give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, 
It's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking to author Ryan North. So I, I do want to read the last few sentences of the book, and I promise it isn't a spoiler, and I was curious if you'd let us do that on the program. Yeah, I really like those last few sentences, so go for it. So it, it goes, Reading this book has transferred knowledge of humanity's greatest achievements from the palm of your hand to the interior of your mind. Earlier we remarked that this text, once stranded in the past, was the single most powerful and dangerous thing on the planet. That is no longer true. You are. Go get him, Tiger. Which I just thought was such a wonderful way to close this book. <laughs> Thank you. No, I love the of, of drama that gave it, but also, you know, you're, you're about to do something crazy. You're about to try to rebuild civilization. So give you the pep talk at the end. Go do it. Like, you got this. <laughs> every advantage in the world, including stuff that we didn't have because we didn't know about it at the time. So you can do this. You know, there, there are really so many things we didn't get to from how to invent a bicycle to how to understand all of modern philosophy and religion through high fives. That might be the most valuable two pages in here, but it's really been such a pleasure. Our guest is Ryan North. The book is How to Invent Everything. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 